Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling news from around the seafood industry. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief. Today I am joined by correspondent John Evans and reporter Nina Unlai. And we have so many topics that we need to cover, but we only have time for a couple. We have more podcasts, and of course we cover all of it on IntraFish.com. Um, but uh, but Nina, I, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the work that you've been doing on plastics um, and on, on packaging, because obviously it's a hot topic uh, around the world. Uh, the circular, circular economy is... Um, but you looked into it to see the impact on the seafood sector, and it looks like um, it looks like there's going to be there's going to be some some major impact coming. Um, yeah, I think I think everyone it's the kind of thing, and and obviously for a topic like this that that isn't covered as frequently or as um, consistently um, in seafood news, it was really interesting to hear from all of these different companies because it it became very clear that it wasn't something that had kind of an overarching message like say sustainability has like like all the companies are more or less on the same page um with this one it kind of felt like everyone was on a different page everyone knew that a change was coming um and they were doing certain things about it but when it came to commitments and things they they didn't even seem to they didn't really seem to line up um but basically what everyone can seem to agree on is that the retailers are pushing for change although that change is coming at different points in time uh some retailers are moving commitments as soon as uh, next year and some are looking as far as uh, 2030 which is the deadliest deadline um and so all everyone kind of knows is that eventually they are going to have to make uh plastic packaging changes um but what shape or form that is going to turn into, no one can seem to agree on, especially because certain formats like skin packaging has kind of really taken over in the general scheme of things. And that's one of the things that looks like they're, they're really going to have to change. And that's, that's really, um, I I mean, as you said, when you look at the overarching trends of say the last mm, decade, decade and a half, what retailers have done is they've stepped away from the fresh counter because they have so much loss that they call shrink. They have so much loss. When you lay out a fresh fillet, um, you don't have a whole lot of shelf life when you have it there on ice. And so skin packs have been a revolution. So it was it was really fascinating to see that um, you know, they're they're really it's not quite on people's radar. I think your piece really brought it onto people's radar that, ooh, you know, this this great format that we've had is suddenly uh, potentially under threat. Right, right. And I think what's interesting is like no one really knows how this is going to change, but it seems to be a consensus that it will have to change. Um, on the retailer's end, when we spoke to um, Chris Brown from Asda, he made the point that skin packs are particularly very um, plastic like they look very plastic to consumers. And that's something that retailers are very conscious about now. Um, it's not just about recyclability because it, theoretically, the top layer of that um, of skin packs is very easily recyclable. Um, but it's more than that. It's how it appears to consumers. It's whether they're going to want to buy it now that there's just a more heightened awareness towards plastic packaging. Um, so it's a lot of things coming at once, um, especially in terms of, whether it being recyclable is even enough 
because you can make it there. Like we spoke to Seal there, and they said that they can actually guarantee a recyclability that's quite high. I believe it was it was ninety uh, upwards of ninety percent recyclability, which is more than is required at the moment. But companies aren't investing in it at the moment, and it's and it's also bigger than that. It's it's whether the countries that these companies um, sell their product in have the means to recycle that. So it's it's a lot of different things coming at once. And I think there's there's just no real answers yet. We just know that some kind of change is going to come. So, I, you know, it'll be interesting to see if this causes some kind of resurgence in the uh, in the fresh fish counter, because that obviously is in, in effect, the, the most sustainable way to sell fish now, when you think about it, if you're looking at it from a recycling point of view. Um, you know, so so uh, you talked to Movie as well, and, and Movie uh, has invested a lot of money and time into skin pack production. So you talked to Ula Bratval there. What did he have to say? Well, Ula was very much of the opinion that we were not going back to fresh fish counters. Um, that even though they were they were a very important part of the history, they're not the future. Um, and he he might be right. You know, it might be uh, it, while fresh fish counters might present as more sustainable. I don't know if it's like you said, if consumers still want to shop that way. Um, I did, there was a survey that I cited um, in one of the articles that showed that packaging was one of the most important concerns for the seafood supermarket shopper, um, which means that they really are looking at packaging to make things more convenient for them. So I don't know if fresh fish counters are the way forward. What I do know is that most of the people we spoke to are putting a lot of their kind of, um, they're putting a lot of faith in manufacturers and suppliers to be able to come up with more innovative solutions and it seems like they are capable of being more innovative um like i said sealed air already says that they have recyclability up to 90 percent um there's another supplier tripack in the grimsby area that's been doing recyclable um a recyclable form of plastic for shipping boxes for like decades so the innovative solutions are there um it seems that at this point what people don't want to talk about is cost um, and because they don't want to talk about it, I'm assuming that it's a very, very big barrier at this point in time. Since the differential is something that people don't really want to talk about, it must be a significant price per unit. Um, and because of that cost, uh, until it becomes necessary to kind of vie for those innovations, I don't know how many companies will see actually investing in them. We know that Young's, for example, has already started investing, um, that they're they're moving towards more recyclable products. They've made the, I think what's been the biggest commitment I've seen so far um, from a processor. Um, so there are companies who are trying to take advantage uh, of this opportunity and kind of like be the first to to start um, investing in innovative packaging solutions. And I think we're going to see more companies follow suit. It's just a matter of like what they're going to be investing in and when. Well, I'm really excited to read the rest of uh, of the work you're going to do on it. So we'll be rolling that out uh, in the coming days because um, there's more to say about it. And I, I don't think this is a, a one-off topic either. So, um, so we'll be returning to it, um, I'm sure, time and again. So on the sustainability front, John, um, really good news out of Peru in the anchovy quota. Uh, 
which I believe is is at a record high for uh, for the second season, uh, according to Peruvian press reports and in, in our our archives too. Um, it's the highest that uh, that I think we've seen. Um, now you talked to the to, to the uh, Peruvian uh, to a couple of the Peruvian companies there, and you also talked to Efo and to Rabobank. So you've got a really good overview of kind of the 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 take from the industry. So what's kind of the takeaway of this uh, of this news on the quota? Um, the takeaway is a little bit mixed, actually, because if you speak to Rabobank, which we did, uh, they're a bit downbeat on the fish meal price outlook, at least until mid-2020, uh, after you, what you mentioned was a 33% uh, increase in the quota. Whereas if you speak to uh, the Peruvian fisheries companies, they're, they're welcoming the, uh, the increase and don't appear too worried by it, to be quite honest. And... Um, you know, they, they, they tend to think if they can't sell it in China, they'll sell it elsewhere. You know, the, the demand is always going to be there, considering, you know, that the uh, the uh, the amount of uh, fish meal available doesn't cover, you know, the world's needs. So, um, yeah. So with the, you, you've also researched a lot, John, on alternative feed ingredients, and that seems to be um, – Coming more and more, it's maybe getting more uh, more press than um, than um, than commercial interest in the sense that they're they're not there's not enough supply really to offset or impact the need for for fish meal. Correct. So I mean the Peruvian anchovy quota remains the sort of uh, the biggest and most important indicator for the aquaculture feed sector. Yeah, I mean, it, it, as I mentioned in the in the report, um, the feed report that we published, it is the swing factor, um, really, in the market. The the the, the factor that influences uh, prices, and uh, in 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 normal times, these are not normal times in China because of the uh, African swine fever outbreak. But in normal times, China takes about a million tons of uh, um, of, of Peruvian. Um, fish meal so yes so so it is it is it uh is it a foregone conclusion then when you see a quota increase like this in peru that we would see a an impact on fish feed prices in the relatively near future that that really depends on who you speak to again i mean as i said rather bank of downbeat but when when you speak to the fishing companies, they say it could depend on the the the, the rate of catch. I mean, if it all comes at the end of the season, none comes, you know, in the first uh, couple of months or something, and then it all comes at the end. That would put a different complexion on it. If it sort of came in a steady stream, um, you know, that might have a, a sort of uh, minimal impact. But if if it all came at the start, you know, that that may have the potential to do that. So yeah. But the fishing companies, generally speaking, don't seem to appear to be too worried about it. Because, I mean, it is, it is, uh, it is uh, possible, and it's happened before, that the quotas um, don't get caught, that uh, despite what the quotas uh, get set at, that Peru uh, may have little mini-bands, they may be catching too many juveniles. I mean, it's a pretty responsive uh, management system in Peru, so... Um, I can understand why the companies are, are you know, they, they have to be happy with the verdict on the health of the stock. But 
Um, the the rub is whether or not they can they can catch those fish. Yeah, the management system has been singled out for praise, and the biomass this time is about nine million tons. Um, so yes, they. Um, I mean, they, they said even if um, we have a, a a high quota this time, it doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be automatically low next time in the corresponding season because. You know, the, the, the biomass may still be between seven, eight uh, million tons next time. So, John, uh, let's stay down in South America. And, and you did some brilliant coverage of the of the Chilean salmon crisis. Just tell us a little bit about where we are. Um, are, are we back to normal now? And, and what was the ultimate impact or what do you think were kind of the, the lessons learned, if anything, by the salmon farming industry? Hmm. Good questions. They, I mean, we are back to normal. We're just about to report that on Interficient from the um, U.S. market point of view. Of course, the United States gets much of its uh, salmon from Chile. Um, when, you, when you talk about uh, to people about how much volume was missing, um, it seems to reflect the patchy nature of what was going on throughout the whole crisis because uh, you did have one person saying one thing and, and another another. I mean, we had what we've had. One source saying our oh, volumes are fifty percent down, and another saying they were twenty five percent down or fifteen to twenty five percent down. So uh, it was quite difficult to gauge. But then again, the United States is such a, a a big and fragmented country. I suppose it's difficult to get a, a fully clear picture. And there was, I mean, there was opportunities, and with people that you talked about, uh, there 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 were opportunities for Norway and Canada to plug up some of that gap. So. It wasn't as if uh, as if the United States didn't have salmon during that whole period, correct? Yeah, and and Norway. I mean, speaking of the Norwegians uh, this week, they said that uh, although there were extra shipments from Norway, it's not a game changing uh, situation for them. So, I, I, if they pick up, I'll be surprised if they pick up any uh, new long standing customers from it. I mean, they might pick up extra business, of course, but. Um, yeah, I think for them to do that, it probably would have needed to go on a bit longer, which would have probably been a tragedy for Chile and the uh, and the Chilean salmon industry as well. Yeah, let's hope it's all uh, it's all dying down, and that there's some um, there's some political movement to uh, to address some of these major concerns. But yeah, uh, I think what was what was interesting was a lot of the uh, the social complaints uh, in, in the disparity in incomes and. Uh, and worker representation, it, it certainly falls into uh, the the salmon industry's lap. That these are these are issues they need to be aware of as well. Yeah, I mean, I previously covered the mining sector in in Chile, um, copper and other metals there, and you know, I saw similar. Um, I saw similar problems there with with the kind of uh, disputes that. You know, block mines for days or weeks on end. Um, you know, with with the social um, problems and inequalities being linked to, um, you know, being linked to uh, pay and, and and everything else there. So, yeah, I mean, these kind of things in South America tend to erupt from time to time to time. The governments keep a lid on it, and then um, yeah, there will be an outbreak. Well, let's see what the long term impact is. All right. Well, uh, John, Nina, thanks so much. And uh, we'll leave it there for our listeners. And a reminder that we have uh, coverage on, on both these topics and 
loads and loads more uh, on intrafish.com. We just revamped our website, so check it out. Um, we're able to uh, showcase a lot more of our, our news in a, in a better visual format for our readers. So uh, if you haven't seen it, um, stop on by. One final night, we have a brand new report out on the land-based salmon farming industry, so check that out. Lots of news rolling out, so we'll be back soon with our next podcast. 